that are real, that are open um, about church, about our lives, about our Christian walk. And certainly that uh, video displays that. If you love those kinds of conversations, then you're going to love the book of James. If you do not like those kinds of conversations, you're going to hate the book of James. Because James is one of those individuals who just comes out and says, look, uh, let's, let's stop sugarcoating things. Let's stop just kind of mamby-pambying around. Uh, we want to get raw. We want to get real. and want to really take a look at our lives. And let's, um, let's see what God's doing in our lives. And let's extract from what God's doing some, some lessons that he's teaching us. And, and what are some gaps where, you know, my life is not aligning itself with the word of God. So what do I need to do in order to, for that to happen so that I'm walking in the fullness and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so today we're going we're gonna to tackle a topic um, that is huge. It's big. It's in the church. It's outside the church. It's everywhere. It's been around since uh, humanity in the fall. Uh, and that is, how do we deal with things like prejudice, discrimination, partiality? Uh, it's interesting to me that James, after he talks about trials and temptations, and then he kind of dives into now... Um, you know, if we, if we really want to um, go deeper with God, uh, we can't just be, you know, hearers of the word. We just can't look at the Bible and say, well, you know, this is where I need to adjust my life to the word of God and, and just walk away and do nothing. We have to be doers of the word because whatever we do is going to be reflected through our conversation. It's going to be reflected in our compassion towards others. It's going to be reflected in our conduct. So now James, and he fleshes that out for the rest of his, his book, he's going he's to hit us on these areas of our conversation, of compassion, in the areas of our conduct. And really today, he's going to hit on two of those areas, our compassion and our conduct. So uh, if you'll take the book of James, uh, open your Bible to the book of James and chapter 2, and there is a, uh, an outline this morning in your bulletin for the message. We're going to kind of dive into... What James is talking about, he says, so he owns this book speaking about trials and temptations. Recall that trials is a trial is a painful circumstance that God allows us to go through because he's zeroing in on our character and our conduct. All right. So what God is wanting to do is he's wanting to take off and put on. He's wanting to take off that which is, should not be a part of our lives and put on that which should be a part of our lives. Like taking off a coat, putting on a coat. That's the way the Apostle Paul kind of described it. And oftentimes in the midst of that, we want God just to like, you know, God, just get me through this as quick as you can. Take it away, you know, do whatever. And if we're not careful, we set up this expectation of God as to the outcome of our trial and how it should happen, when it should happen, and, and how quickly it should happen. And if God does not meet your expectation, that always results in disappointment. Listen, when you are disappointed with somebody, uh, it never just remains disappointment. It, it festers itself in anger and resentment and, and eventually bitterness. And so... Those who live in uncommon faith, we said, are those who are willing to, as James challenges us, to remain in the trial because we know that our joy is in knowing that God is forming and fashioning us into the likeness of Christ, that he is transforming my character and my conduct. And uh, he allows this experience of a trial that's always motivated by love. He's taking me through this valley because he's heading me towards a mountaintop. And I'm going to be changed having come through the valley. 
right? So in the midst of trials, we face temptation. We, we face temptation all the time, but certainly when we are in trials. And remember, this table is like the parameter of God's word and, and uh, what God has said. This is, I want you to live within the framework of this parameter, the Bible, uh, because this is like God's guardrail. He's trying to protect you from what's on the outside so that when we choose to blow through God's guardrail and sin, remember, sin always has built-in consequences. Choose to sin, choose to suffer. Uh, you're going to suffer in some way. It may be immediate. It may be um, not quite immediate, but somewhere along the line it's going to come, and um, it can have very devastating uh, consequences. So the issue is always, is always, can God be trusted? Can I trust God? Because what you're facing temptation-wise always has um, uh, far-reaching effects beyond what it is that you, you have in front of you. So uncommon faith says, you know what, uh, I'm going to choose, I'm going to choose in an act of my will uh, that I'm going to walk in the Spirit, walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, because I do not want to walk in the flesh and fulfill the desires of the flesh. Remember, he says all temptation is appealing to a desire of ours, our own evil desires. So you can't walk, there's no third road to walk on, okay? You're either walking in the Spirit or you're walking in the flesh. Read Galatians 5. And it tells you the outcome of walking in the flesh as opposed to to the outcome of walking in the Spirit. There's, not, there's, not, there's no third way, so you're either doing one or the other. So when you're facing temptation, Satan is always tempting you to walk in the flesh, and the Spirit of God's always coming at you and, and prompting you to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. And as you walk in the power of the Holy Spirit is evidenced in your life, as you are making progress in your spiritual walk with God, the power of the Spirit is coming upon you, and it is evidencing itself through your conversation, your compassion, and your conduct. So James comes and he says, now there's an issue in the church, obviously, that's going on to whom he is writing. People oftentimes think, well, the early church was, you know, this perfect church. It was not. Uh, there were many problems in the early church because they were, they were filled with people, right? So whatever church is filled with people, we got problems, we got issues, because we are a problem and we are an issue, all right? Can we just admit that? Let's get that out of the way. Just tell your neighbor they're a problem, okay? You just get, get it out there. Let them know. Um, don't expound on it. Just tell them they're, they're a problem. That helps us all. So what, what James starts right out, no, notice what he says. He starts right out. He gives, now here's kind of the pattern James is going to use. He's going to give a command, and then he kind of gives you an example or an illustration, and he's going to come back and say, hey, there's a better way. There's a better way to live. There's a better way to approach this. There's a better way to tackle this problem or issue. He says, my brothers, chapter 2, verse 1, my brothers, as believers in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, do not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shab shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing the fine clothes and say, hey, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand or sit over on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into the court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? 
If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbors yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So James is tackling this issue. You notice the word favoritism. It means, um, it means to judge someone on the basis of appearance. It means to place a value on somebody on how you perceive them to be, not necessarily how they truly are. Or let's say you find out they are truly that way. Now you're still attaching a value to them. Well, they're not a very nice person. They're not of much value. Uh, they don't act right. They're not of much value. And so whether you call it favoritism or discrimination or prejudice, really pride is behind it all. Pride is behind all prejudice. And so prejudice fuels favoritism. It fuels discrimination. Or some of your translations might use the word partiality. In other words, we are treating people differently on the basis of how we perceive their value to society. And we all struggle with this. It was a struggle in the church or he wouldn't have been addressing this situation and issue. It's a struggle in churches yet today. I remember when I was in college, and I think I may have shared this before. I was in college. I was working at, it's kind of like a, it wasn't a 7-Eleven, but it was kind of like a 7-Eleven. I'd work for a guy and uh, in a grocery store for like three and a half years. Um, he just opened this store and had gas pumps and all that. Uh, he asked me to spend six months, you know, I only had six months left, and I'd be moving, heading off to seminary. And he asked me if I would transfer and, and work out my six months in the stores they were trying to get it off the ground, because I, I'm one who needed to work at night, because I had classes during the day. Sure, I'll do that. Well, it was in a location that was not really uh, great, okay, just to say the least. But it was near the hospital. It was like up over the hill. The hospital was there. So I'm there one night. And so I did the shift from 6 to closing, which was 6 to midnight. I'm in there. It's like 10 o'clock at night. And um, all of a sudden, um, I hear this rumbling, man. I just rumble, rumble. And here comes a motorcycle gang. I'm not talking like your typical motorcycle gang. I'm talking like Hell's Angels kinds of motorcycle game. Come run it rolling into the parking lot. And I thought, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Do I just like jump up and see my first thought was they're going to rob me. They're going to rob me because, you know, these kinds of places are easy targets. They're out of the way. Um, there's no, we didn't have any big security back then. No security cameras or anything like that. So I, I was okay, they're going to rob me. And I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I was like Don Knotts and the shakiest gun in the West. I'm like, I'm just going to give them the, the drawer to the cash register. Like, when they come in here, just take what you want and go. I, you know, I don't care. I don't own this stuff. It doesn't matter to me. And of course, you know, we have a safe in those stores and that safe is built into the floor. The problem is uh, every time we, you know, we had $50 increments, we had to put it in that safe. 
I did not have the combination that safe. And all I could think of was like, that, man, these guys are going to try to beat it out of me. They're going to tie me up and throw me in the cooler and take whatever they want and leave, right? So that was, this is all playing out in my head as they are coming in on the parking lot. I'm talking, there's like 20 of them. And uh, they come rolling in the store. The end of the story is my experience was they were probably some of the most polite and friendly guys that I'd, I'd met all evening. They didn't rob the store. They didn't hold me at gunpoint. Um, they didn't do any of those things. Now, whether or not they walked out with half of the store, I don't know. They may have, but it didn't matter to me because it wasn't my stuff, right? So sometimes we preconceive people. We put a value on them. We we prejudge them just on the basis of how you look. Now, I, as a motorcycle rider, know this because when I strap on my leathers and get on my motorcycle and I go to places and come walking in with, you know, looking pretty shabby and, you know, haven't shaved and the leathers are on, it's amazing how people, especially in stores, treat you a little bit differently. You're kind of suspect. Like, who in the world is this dude? What do you want? And so James says, this is going on in the church, that people come in and we, we have preconceived notions about them on the basis of, of what they look like, and we allow the cultural context to shape the way that we treat people. I'm going to give you five areas in which we do this really quickly. You can just jot this down. It's not on your outline, but there are five areas that we are tempted to show favoritism or prejudice. Uh, one is by appearance, right? How, what, what is the person wearing? How do they look? Their height, their weight, whatever it is that you, you prejudge people. Uh, it is known through many studies that the best looking often get the best jobs, make more money, are, are more apt to get the promotions over those who are not. I remember in the church back when I was, when God called me into the ministry, it was under an evangelist named Dale Riddle. And he and his wife, they were singers and he was an evangelist. But here's the thing. So this is like, um, like back in the early 80s, Dale Riddle, Riddle had a full beard. He told me um, whenever he would send out his publicity material to the church that had secured him to come to be the evangelist, when they saw the full beard, they canceled immediately because he had a beard. See, that kind of stuff goes on in churches. I don't know that so much goes on today. Now it's more, we don't look at the full beard. We just want to know how many tattoos they have, right? As though that matters. So appearance, uh, in other words, James would just challenge us, don't, don't withhold love, don't withhold affection, don't withhold hospitality, don't withhold friendship or service or kindness on the basis of how somebody looks. But sometimes we struggle with that. And then the second way is in ancestry, that is, we, we judge people by their race or, race or their nationality or their ethnic background. We see someone who's Arab and we automatically assume they're tied to, an Arab, to a terrorist organization. And James would say, that's, that's not right. We can't do that. Age, yeah, age. Sometimes we discriminate on the basis of age. I was 28 years old when I took my first church. And when I walked in the door, it was amazing. People come up to me and said, well, blessed be to God, do you even shave? <laughs> I... I got grandkids your age. I don't think you can teach me anything. 
and I was treated differently, uh, just uh, on the basis of my age. And now I, I, I've aged gracefully. So it's amazing that when I would go to the hospitals, that, uh, well, you're laughing about that. I don't know. Okay, maybe I haven't. Uh, so I go to the hospital, you know, uh, this, I'm, I'm 28, 29 years old, and, and people would be laying there, bend, and they would introduce me. Well, this is my pastor. And people just look at you like, really? How old is this guy? Huh? Achievement is another area. We, we, we judge people based on their achievement. What, what do they do professionally? What is their title? What is the level of their education? And sometimes, um, for example, we, we go to, into a doctor's office and we, hear, we have a person who's highly, obviously highly educated, highly intelligent, and we assume, we assume they have their lives all together and we assume they don't need the gospel. We assume a lot of things and we discriminate and we, we think, you know, there's no way God could use me to reach them. My wife has worked for a number of doctors. Uh, she worked for Cons, which is Central Ohio Neurosurgeons, and I've been around a lot of doctors. And can I tell you? Yes, they were highly gifted, highly intelligent individuals, but they face the same problems you do. They have the same struggles, they have the same issues. They are people who are in need of Jesus just like everyone else. And then the last one's affluence. What's your attitude towards those who make more money than you? What's your attitude towards those who make less money than you? What is your attitude towards others? How do you approach them? How do you value them? Or do you put labels on people like designers put labels on clothes? And, and so sometimes we, we want to label everybody, right? We say in, in school, if we value education. We say that this child's a slow learner. This child is a fast learner. This child is disruptive. This child is not, and so we may treat them differently on the basis of how we value them. This child isn't as valuable because they're not as smart and they're not as uh, you know, aggressive and they're just disruptive in class as opposed to this person over here is compliant and they're, they're smart, intelligent, and they're moving forward, and so we're going we're to spend more time on this one than this one because we think this person, we, we may not come out and say that, but we, we approach it that way. We can do that in a lot of different areas. My point is simply this. This is a real struggle for us. And so James, you know, he, he gives us a what, a why, and a better way. And he says the what is do, do not show favoritism. Because that is the default mechanism of our, our hearts. And so he gives us an example. He says, man, here are two people who come in church. One guy, this guy is wealthy. He's got the rings. He's got the clothes. He's got the clout. Probably a business person, a man of great influence, a great wealth. And he comes into the church, and they march him down. They give him the finest of places to sit and treat him with honor. And here comes a person who's poor, who has nothing to give the church, uh, but needs to receive. And they set this guy in the back of the church at the feet of somebody. So we don't have to even have a seat for you. And therefore, on the basis of their appearance, there is a judgment call that is made concerning the value of that person, and they're treated differently. Now, please notice, he's, in verse 4, he says, you, have you not discriminated among yourselves? Please notice who makes the value judgment here. It's not the rich guy. Now, where does the Bible say that it's, that it's sinful to be rich? There are a lot of wealthy people in Scripture. There are a lot of wealthy Christians who leverage their wealth for kingdom purposes. I've been around them. I've met them. 
who, who leveraged tons of money, they live off the 10% and they tithe the 90% because they believe in what God is doing and through, through his, his local church and through those God he's raising up to put into ministry. Um, but they're treated different on the basis of their looks. When somebody enters in our doors and they look different, they're not dressed as well. You know, when I first started going to church back in the mid-70s as a teenager, the best I had to offer were just like ragged jeans, a T-shirt, which had who knows what on the front of it, the long hair, hot temper, poor disposition, and a foul mouth. Now, there were some, limited, some who treated me unkindly. But by and large, those who, the couples that were working with the youth at the time, treated me like, you know, I I was royalty to them. And as a result of that, I came to faith in Christ, who dramatically changed my life. But what if they had not? What if they would have said, you know what? We don't want you infecting our kids because they look right, they talk right, they, they do the right things by and large, but they really didn't know what they were doing behind the scenes. But trust me, they weren't acting right and doing right. Uh, I, I wish I could say of our church that that's never happened, but it has. When we were reaching a lot of teenagers at one point, they came in here with the tattoos, piercings, wild hair, clothes, hats on. And unfortunately, some of them were accosted in the hallways and told to take their hats off. You can't dress this way. You can't look this way. And guess what? They walked out our doors. And what you did not know is that their parents didn't go to church. Their mother was a prostitute. Their dad was a drug dealer. They were doing these various things. And based on sheer appearance, they were treated differently. And as a result, they left. They walked away. They formulated their own opinion about Christianity. Now, why is this so important? The reason it's so important, and what I think James just tried to say to us, look, when we show favoritism, I don't care if it's based on age, ancestry, whatever it is, however it is, even in the church among ourselves, we all have preferences, right? So we like to be around certain people who have similar likes on us and you know, similar things. I get that. I understand that. But, but, but don't show favoritism. The reason is because it's dishonoring to God and it shows to us, it reveals to us that we do not understand the gospel. That's what James is saying. That's where he's going. That's where he's hammering home his message is that reason we show favoritism is because it just dishonors God. It reveals our lack of understanding the gospel. I, I, I get that. I understand that. Oh, and so he says, basically, you, you have become judges, he says in verse 4. You know, when I was a kid growing up, um, one of the things that we did in our neighborhood, you know, there wasn't a lot of um, organized sports. 
So I'm just revealing my age. It's okay. Uh, so here's, here's how organized sports went. The two most athletic guys on the block, right? So whether you're playing basketball, baseball, football, whatever it was, the two most athletic guys, um, they got to choose the teams, right? So you gather up, let's say if there's 20 of us, and two guys, they, they get to choose teams. So it's like, you know, one gets to choose first, which you flip the coin, and the other one gets to choose. And so, you know, when you're standing in line, guess what you don't want to have happen? You don't want to be last, right? You don't want to be the guy to which they say, well, I guess you got to I guess I got to take you. Right? Sometimes I was that guy. Um That's what James is saying. That's how it makes someone feel when we show when we attach a value to somebody. It's like, "Oh, we've got to be around you. We've got to accept you. We got to bring you into our group." Because that can happen in churches because churches, churches form natural cliques because you like to be around people that you prefer. And so this group, you know, they're, they bond because they've been together a long time. This group over maybe bonds over hobby. This one bonds over sports uh, or some kind of like. Or di- so we bond in different groups. And then when somebody new comes into the church, it's like how, how do they, how do they f- fit into, how do they assimilate into these already established groups? And so we do, we, we, we don't want to step outside the boundary of our group, right? We may say hi to you. I might say, hey, how you doing? How you doing? Glad you're here. We may do all those peripheral things, but then we don't step out and say, hey, how about you come to lunch with us? How about you come and be involved in our group? How about you come and, and actually invite them and to engage into your group? Because the underlying um, problem is, is that we, we put value on people and we think, well, but we don't want them messing up our group. It's our group. So here's what I want you to, here's what I don't want you to forget. I've only got a few minutes here. Number one, don't forget that we are all, we are all equal in sin. He says, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and, and inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? And here's the rich people. They, they insult you. They exploit you. Um, they're, they're defaming the name of Christ, the very one. What he's saying here is that, look, it's not that rich people can't be saved, and it's not that you know, poor people are just like closer to God than the rich. It's that when you are in poverty, when you are living in poverty, and trust me, when I was in seminary, my wife and I were in college and seminary, we were living in poverty. It is amazing how much more dependent you are on, the, on God, how much more um, you trust him, how much more you just like put yourself out there because you have no other choice. But it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor or somewhere in between. Salvation comes to all of us the very same way. We are all equal in sin. All of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And when you look at Galatians 5, when it talks about the, the, you know, the uh, works of the flesh versus the works of the spirit, it says that the works of the flesh are like, uh, like jealousy. He, he equates jealousy like with, he lumps it in with like witchcraft. And he, and he lumps in, Paul does, drunkenness and orgies and discords with being argumentative. And he basically says in, to all of us, listen, 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 listen. I know that you think that in all your awesomeness that God really got to deal with you. He, he, he didn't. 
You're not nearly as awesome as you think you are. Neither am I. When it comes to sin, trust me, at no point, at no point, when Jesus shed his blood on the cross, did he think in his mind, Father, I'm doing all of this for all of those who have sinned, except Greg, he's so awesome. We're all equal. We are all equal in salvation. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 reminds us that we did not deserve our salvation, that none of us has a greater salvation than somebody else, that we all come to him in the same way. There's no different ranks within salvation, right? It doesn't matter how long you were away from the Lord, or how long, you know, maybe you were saved at a young age, maybe it was mid-age, maybe it was older. It doesn't matter. We are all equal in salvation. There's no kid's table in heaven. How many of you remember growing up, uh, uh, you know, you used to, you know, all your family, so my, my grandparents had a restaurant, my grandmother's incredible cook, so she'd have all the kids and grandchildren every Sunday over to eat, right? So uh, we all come, so there was like 20 grandkids, uh, and plus the kids, and so, you know, all the adults got to sit at the big table, and all the kids got to sit at the kids' table, right? So here was your goal as a child growing up. So, you know, they're having adult conversations. So when you're young, you don't care because they're boring, all right? They're just like boring adults. I don't care about sitting at the adult table. But then when you, like, get older and you get to, the, like, the teenage years and you think to yourself, you know what, I would like to interject some thoughts into their conversations and try to straighten them out. So I was thinking, you know what, I can't wait to be in the adult table. And there comes a point in time in which you reach an age in which, guess what, you get to graduate to the adult table. And you get to have the conversation with all the adults and now you're the boring one uh, as the kids are looking on at you. Sometimes I think we, in our minds, we think, you know what? I'm, I'm so awesome that when I get to heaven and I get to the marriage supper of the Lamb, I'm going to get to sit at the adult table and some of you are going to be sitting at the kids' table. There is, there's no kids' table. I hate to burst your theology. We're equal in worth. How do you know what something is worth? Worth is based upon the maker, the rarity, and the price. Who is your maker? It is God who formed and fashioned you in your mother's womb. How rare are you? You are so rare that when God formed and fashioned you, listen, he did not make one single person exactly like you. You have a unique fingerprint. You have a unique DNA. You have unique passions and gifts and talents and abilities because that's what God placed in you. That's what he formed and fashioned you to be. You are, he's your maker. You are so rare. And when it comes to the price, the price is what somebody is willing to pay for it. And what is it that God was willing to pay for in your life? He was willing to send his son to die for you. So here's my point. I think here's where James is taking us is, listen, when we show favoritism, when we, when we just like, you know, treat people different and we place value on people, listen, if you're going to put a value on somebody, put God's value on them. He's their maker and he is the one who formed and fashioned them and they are a rarity to him and he died for them. Therefore, he is 
or she is just as valuable as you are. It doesn't matter what their skin color is. It doesn't matter what they're wearing on their body. It doesn't matter what they might be saying or not saying. It doesn't matter their opinion about whether or not you should take a knee in the NFL. Every single human being, Jesus would say to us, that you have ever locked eyes on is a person of worth and value to God. So treat them as such. So here's, here's what I want to wrap up. Um, if, we're, if, we, if we are going to live a better way, if you're going to purge yourself of prejudice, then there are three things that you need to do. Number one is Scripture. Scripture must be your standard. You must let the Word of God sift your heart You must let the word of God and the spirit of God to root out of you any crevices and cracks of prejudice. Listen, I never thought I was prejudiced against anybody. But then I was in seminary, went to a church, and they had a huge, huge ministry to the homeless. And you know what I thought in my mind? Well, the reason why these guys and gals are homeless is because they're lazy, they don't want to work, and they're just trying to, you know, uh, live off everybody else. And then God... God put me in a class of believers, and every week, three or four small groups would feed lunch to the homeless. There were 200 of them, and I actually sat down and talked to them, and God began to rip out my heart, and I began to see how prejudiced I really was, and that many of these people, they weren't out on the streets because they wanted to be. They weren't lazy. Many of them were victim of circumstances beyond their control. And so God began to break my heart for the homeless. And I began getting more and more involved in that area of ministry. That's what I love about the Stowe Center. So you, help, you help to support the Stowe Center on Parsons Avenue that reaches out and engages in the homeless. You've got to let Scripture be your standard. Look at Jesus Jesus, in his dealings with people like Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, they were wealthy people. But then he went to people like who were the social outcasts, like the woman at the well and those who were poor. There was no difference to him. They all needed the same message. They needed Jesus to come and bring order out of their chaotic lives. Number two is love must be your law. He says the royal law. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, why is it royal? Because God gave it. Jesus highlighted it, and the Holy Spirit inspires it. The royal law deals with all issues. The first, there was really like the Ten Commandments. So the first commandments deal with our relationship with God. The last deal with our relationships with one another. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know what would transform our country in one month? If every single citizen of America just lived by the royal law. I don't want to, law, I don't want to lie to you because I don't want you lying to me. I don't want to harm you because I don't want you harming me. And so it would absolutely ratify the mindset and the behavior of our citizens. But the problem is we, we have this sin thing that we're dealing with in our hearts. You love the royal law. Why? Because here's what love does. If you look at the life of Jesus, here's what love does. Love pays attention. Love pays attention. When you are talking to somebody and you're in a conversation, they're just like this on their phone. How do you feel? 
disrespected. They don't care. They're not interested. I'm boring them. But what happens when you give them eye-to-eye contact and conversation? Everything changes, right? Because what you're saying to me is, I'm valuable, I'm important to you. And so Jesus came across a man who had been born blind. All of his life he was a beggar. And this beggar, people just be, you know, when you're begging on a corner, after a while people just like stop seeing you. You're just like an object. They don't even pay attention anymore. You're, you're just there. And so they just kind of like go by you. But Jesus stopped and he paid attention and he brought healing and hope back into the heart of that individual. Can I tell you, church, we rub shoulders with people every single day who are living in spiritual blindness and God wants to bring them sight. But if we're not careful, we no longer pay attention to them because we do not value them. Let's just call it what it is. The second thing Jesus did is that love, love not only pays attention, but love um, touches the untouchables. You've heard me talk many times about, you know, in school where kids were deemed uh, as having cooties. You know, when you had cooties in school, when I went to school, it was like nobody wanted to touch you, nobody wanted to be around you, they didn't want to get cooties because there was no... There, there was no um, there was no way to heal it. There was no way to take it away. You had cooties. You had cooties for life. And I remember distinctly in elementary school, there were two identical sisters who went to our school who came from what we call the, like, the other side of the tracks, and they were poor, they were dirty, and they came. And all through elementary school, they had cooties, and nobody wanted to be around them. No one wanted to include them in anything. And I, and I, got to th- you know, I didn't even really think about it as a child growing up. But now as an adult, as an adult I think back and I think to myself, how How must those girls have felt all of their life knowing that nobody wanted to be around them, nobody wanted to touch them, no one wanted to include them, they were excluded from everything, how that must have damaged their self-worth, their self-esteem. And so in Jesus' day, those who were excluded, those who would not be touched were the lepers And those who had leprosy, nobody wanted to have anything to do with them because you might contract leprosy and there was no known cure and you'd be put in a colony and there to die and nobody would touch you or hug you ever again. And yet these are the very people that Jesus went out and he would heal. Sometimes he would heal with a word, but sometimes he would touch the leper and then speak a word of healing. And I think Jesus is communicating to us is that, listen, there are all kinds of people that we rub shoulders with day in and day out who feel like they are so unimportant, they are so, uh, they, have, they have no value to anyone, or, and they're just filled with shame, and they're filled with guilt, and they're filled with fear, and nobody's touching them. How about if we let the Holy Spirit open up our eyes to these people because I believe if we do that God will lead us to them and we can touch them. And then there's the sound of grace. It's what love searches hiding people just like Jesus sought out Zacharias. You know, a tax collector. Nobody wanted to be around Zacharias. Nobody liked Zacharias. He was a tax collector. He worked for Rome. He was the enemy. But Jesus sought him out and asked him to come down and he went to his house. See, this is the royal law. Love must be your law. Love is what drives us to 
to follow God. Listen, you're not following God. You're not like setting up rules. It's like Jesus didn't come and say, well, I'm, I'm abolishing the law. He said, I didn't come to abolish the law. He said, I came to fulfill it. And I came to build within us a love mechanism that causes us to reach out to people and to serve people and to walk with God and walk after God. Not because I'm trying to earn God's favor, not because I'm trying to ward off God from having bad things to happen to me. No, it's because God loves me and I, he has shown mercy to me. Now I want to show mercy to others and I want to love them as Christ has and is loving me and will love me throughout eternity. And if we walk in that, then we will look for people who are walking in blindness. We will look for people who are dead in their sin. We will look for people who are in need of a touch from the hand of God. If we listen to the Spirit and to his promptings and take the law and and we never come to a person and say to ourselves, not, not that person. Not that one. No. They're not that valuable. They're different than me. They don't look like me. They don't run in my circles. They don't live where I live. And James would hammer us and say, how dare you? To make such a value judgment. And then he says in the last one, mercy, mercy must be, must be your message. And he talks about speak and act as though who are going to be judged because we will stand at the judgment seat of Christ where we will judge for our words and our conduct. He said, no, 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 let mercy, let mercy drive you. So I want us to bow our heads for a moment. And I know this is, this is a very hard-hitting message for all of us because, and if it's not hard-hitting to you, then you're living in deception. Deception. 